Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It's been a busy several weeks in the Trump legal forest. The former president and his family are taking legal hits from every direction. Some of these land directly, such as the testimony of Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump in the fraud trial, which is hurtling toward a verdict that could decimate Trump organization operations in New York and the Trump brand generally. Elsewhere, the damage to Trump is indirect, but no less ominous. Recent developments in the Fulton County case brought by DA Fonnie Willis, particularly the guilty pleas of three lawyers who were members of Trump's post-election circle, have significantly narrowed the gap between Trump and the looming possibility of a RICO conviction that could carry significant jail time in a Georgia state prison. Perhaps the most serious risk on Trump's horizon is the January 6th trial before Judge Tanya Chutkin, where the court has been little moved by Trump's numerous delay stratagems, and she is now following a schedule that has an initial jury selection process beginning in early February. And a wild card is in play in at least two states, with cases brought by voters seeking to disqualify Trump from appearing on the ballot next year based on his post-election activities to steal the election from Biden. At the same time, Chutkin, as well as Arthur Engeron, the judge in the New York fraud trial, are trying to deal with Trump's incendiary rhetoric and torrent of insults toward the prosecutors and judges and potential witnesses in his many trials. Meanwhile, the timing of Trump's documents case in Florida looks increasingly elastic, as Judge Eileen Cannon has indicated she's inclined to grant another significant delay to the Trump team. To take stock of the walking legal nightmare that is Donald Trump, and to suss out where and how the various legal hammers are likely to fall. We have a superb group of expert analysts of Trump's travails, friends of Talking Feds all. And they are Norm Eisen, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institute, the founder and chair of the State's United Democracy Center, and a CNN legal analyst. Norm served as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee from 2019 to 2020, as U.S. Ambassador to the Czech Republic from 2011 to 2014, and as special counsel and special assistant to President Obama for ethics and government reform from 2009 to 2011. He's been a ubiquitous commentator on CNN and in other media over the last few weeks. So, Norm, we're very happy you could take some time to join us today. Always a pleasure. I'm so glad to be back with you and with Hugo and Jen. (laughs) It's just like all of us were hanging out at a bar in D.C. talking about the events of the week. Exactly. And not just the week, the last few. I mean, I'm really want to use all your guys' prowess to dig a little deeper. And very pleased to welcome for that purpose also Hugo Lowell, a political investigations reporter in the Washington Bureau of The Guardian covering Donald Trump and the Justice Department. 
Hugo has broken a number of high-profile stories surrounding the January 6th committee investigation and the Trump prosecutions, and he regularly appears as a political analyst on MSNBC. Hugo, thank you so much for coming back to Talking Feds. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with uh, Norm, and I can get him actually uh, on the phone because he's normally so difficult to get a hold of, and obviously Jen and Harry as well. Finally, a Talking Feds stalwart and my law school classmate, Jen Rubin, an opinion columnist for the Washington Post and an MSNBC contributor. Prior to her career in journalism, Jen worked as a labor law attorney for two decades. She is the author of the book, Resistance, How Women Save Democracy from Donald Trump. Jen, thanks as always for joining us on Talking Feds. My pleasure. All right. Hello, everyone. I, thanks again to Norman Jen for filling in when I was gone on the Talking Fez YouTube channel. This is going to be a little bit different from normal current events episodes. There's been this flurry of recent developments, east, west, north, and south, really. And I want to take advantage of the special expertise and sophistication and reporting chops of this group to dig deeper into some of the trickier but important issues they present that really have been at least underreported or not at all reported in the last few days. So I'm just going to lay out the facts and then ask all of us to proceed to the sort of legal stress points and judgment calls, unless you disagree with any of my presentation. If so, say so. So let's start with the big event of this week, the fraud trial against the Trump Organization, I'll set the table, as I say, so we can move from facts to analysis quickly. So, very bad week in the fraud trial for the Trumps, in particular Donald Jr. and Eric, who both were exposed for at least a couple very hard-to-swallow claims of ignorance, but their overall refrain was, I know nothing, and I relied on the accountants. Assuming that's true, what does it mean for the judge, Justice Arthur Engeron? Can he rule for the AG, Letitia James, without finding the Trump's testimony not credible? Or are we looking at a situation where he basically says, I don't believe them? He's definitely going to make a finding that they are not credible. You could see the reactions, according to those in the courtroom, as Don Jr., but in particular, Eric, was confronted with documents proving the opposite of his effort to get away from these outrageous misvaluations where you have properties that are being valued sometimes by a factor of 10 in excess of what they're actually worth. So the finding of no credibility to buttress intent is one of the most unassailable on appeal. It's a great point. Engeron is the jury and judge here, right? And that may be yet another Trump legal screw up. There's a debate about whether for some, not for all, but whether for some, you might have at least argued for a jury trial, right? And who knows how a jury would have reacted to these characters. So I think you're going to find a, uh, you're going to have a finding of no credibility Various other ways, extreme willful blindness can substantiate. I've been pouring through the New York cases to get ready for the pod. It can substantiate, be tantamount to intent. 
Yeah, it's you were really slicing the legal salami thin, but that's right. Willful blindness, head in the sand, is a form of knowledge. Hugo, Jen, you know, he had no hesitation to call Donald Trump Sr. a liar in his 45 seconds on the bench last week in the, in the gag order, little back and forth. Is that where we're going here? I think aside from the obvious inconsistencies where the lawyer put documents in front of Eric showing that he was asked for information that went to evaluation, the basic premise of their defense, the lawyers or the accountants did this, is absolutely false and not credible. Accountants do not do property. And you would know, right? I do. Um, I speak from... Uh, Put it this way, accountancy by marriage. Um, <laughs> and they do not do that. And they routinely make these requests of their clients for the underlying data. How would an accountant know what a building is worth? They have no basis for doing so. So they continually ask the client for data. And when they make their findings, they always put a caveat on there, which is to the best of not my knowledge, based on information that was provided to me, because they have no way. They don't go out and um, independently do assessments. You don't see accountants driving around town looking at the sales prices for businesses in Manhattan. That's just not what they do. So the whole defense is nonsense from the start. And the fact, frankly, they would make it, I think, shows willfulness. It's one thing to make an excuse that has some plausibility. But since they know accountants never do the evaluation, the fact that they've made up this lie shows a degree of willfulness and contempt for their own responsibilities that I think is going to weigh really heavily against them. I don't think this is a close call. No, I think they're both excellent points. And I think the moment that really galvanized for me how strong the evidence is and how not credible, especially Eric was, was when the state presented evidence that he was involved in emails and on the back and forth of email chains of basically assessing the value of Seven Springs and the fact that there were statements of financial condition being prepared. And even then, Eric was trying to suggest that you know he had no recollection or he was not involved when the email clearly shows that he was involved. And I think yesterday that kind of settled it for me that the evidence is, is so overwhelming in this case. Yeah, I think we got four votes then for this. I think it's fair to say that Team Trump supposes they're going to get totally clobbered and they're trying to set up issues for appeal. Do they have anything to work with so far as you see it? Well, I think there's two issues. One they can go after the judge, which is one of the reasons they've been having these antics and these outbursts and trying to provoke the judge so to undercut his impartiality or claim sort of bias. But the other issue, which we don't know how it's going to come out, is what remedy he's going to recommend and whether that is supported by the facts. There's a whole range of things he could do. He could literally take these properties away from Trump, order them liquidated, use the proceeds to pay off the fine to something much more minor than that. Is Trump going to be and his son's going to be allowed to be involved in this business at all? Are they going to be allowed to retain ownership in part or all of these businesses? So how exactly he shapes the remedy and whether in the eyes of the 
Court of Appeals, these go beyond the level of mendacity here is going to be really interesting. And my sense is that the judge, frankly, has a lot of leeway. The indication we have of what the judge is going to do comes from his partial summary judgment on count one. But it's also a warning. And it goes hand in hand with attempting to goad and bait the judge by provoking his clerk and his natural protective instincts towards a member of his staff. And the judge did order as a remedy for the finding of fraud on the first count, the removal of the certificates to do business. That has been stayed by the second department. Trump has repeatedly sought a stay of the entire trial. That's been denied. But the certificates, and we'll have a hearing in a few days that will tell us what the second department thinks of these draconian remedies. Pulling these certificates is tantamount to the corporate death penalty, particularly he's paired them with the receivership. Was it prudent to do that before trial? Is it appropriate to do it for partial summary judgment on one of seven counts? And then you, the judge, there's been some set twos. I don't know when I've seen a judge fight that way with litigants. He threatened to gag the lawyers from building an appellate record. So those, Jen is right. That's the the one-two punch. But we have some clues. Let's, you know, whatever the liability findings may be, what will we end up with as penalties? There's going to be a big second department and appellate fight that'll go all the way up through the New York courts. I think uh, the judge has extended that gag order to the attorneys as well. And so that hypothetical is now reality. And that is going to be something that Chris Kyes in particular, you know, Trump's lead lawyer here, has been making a a mainstay of his, his time in court. And, you know, look, part of that is because as Trump's playbook is to attack and to distract and to delay. And there was some suggestion from people around Trump's team yesterday that they did want to end on something other than Eric's testimony. So I think that is clearly something that is at play here. But the other issue that came up when Michael Cohen testified that Chris Kyes tried to uh, make a move for was to say that Michael Cohen wasn't a good witness. Anything that came out of Cohen's testimony was also problematic. So I think there's some avenues that that Trump's team is looking to explore. But again, they have a sophisticated judge, experienced, who's also the jury here. The way I see Cohen playing out is the state argues, well, we have corroboration on everything. And Engeron actually saying, I don't care. I've given zero weight to what Cohen has said, because if he even gives a scintilla, it's a potential legal issue on appeal. I just want to underscore, I mean, it seems to me our consensus again is the best case scenario for them is a fine, or is a disgorgement remedy in the that starts with two and has nine figures. But this certificate issue is looming in the background and it's been stayed and maybe was, as Norm said, you know, premature, but it's still a big one. And that is equivalent to Trump brand. You are um, defunct. All right, let me ask. So so the day we drop this, we're going to see the former president take the stand. What do we expect from his testimony? It's obviously inherently dramatic, but is it dramatic and important for whether the AG wins her case or not? Well, I think you're going to see the former president confronted 
with these discrepancies. And because he has personally pushed them and publicly pushed them in a way that his sons and his daughter have not, he's going to be asked to justify them. You mean in his public statements, Norm? Yeah. 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 That he's the most successful and that he's probably worth more. And were you lying then, sir? And you signed this? Do you still stand by this? And then if he says yes, they confront him with all the proof that the valuations are not accurate. In a sense, because Eric and Don Jr. would not really get behind those phony numbers, they pointed a finger at others. They didn't expressly say, ask my daddy. But they pretty much, like, if somebody's got to go to the pokey here, we're going to let it be someone else, not us. And his name is Alan Weisselberg, I think, right? Well, they, they blamed a lot of people, but there is an implicit finger there that's pointing at Trump Sr. And I think you're going to see that. It's going to be very dramatic testimony. And then very interesting that Ivanka will come after that because of her failed appellate effort. Do you see that? Uh, you know, Mary Trump says she's going to throw the father under the bus. My, you know, my best guess is that's a fairly quick and inconsequential bit of testimony, but it's a real drama to look out for for Ivanka. Yes, there is, because she has personal knowledge of the values of some of these properties. And coming after her father, if she contradicts him or she refuses to vouch for them, I think there's some drama to that, that Ivanka Trump impeaches own father. That's a good headline. The thing about Donald Trump is you can always bait him with his ego. So if you tell him, well, you really weren't coming up with these evaluations. Oh, yes, I was. I was in charge. It all came from me. You can just see how he gets sucked into this. Well, Ivanka was really running. The company. Oh, she wasn't. She doesn't know anything about businesses. I know all about this business. So you could just see how he kind of incriminates himself. This is what he does in public under the hands of a skilled lawyer. You can see him really go to town. And some of these bizarre statements that he has made, like sort of the buildings have unlimited value because he could always sell them to the Saudis. Right, right. Ever price. What the heck does that mean? And that in and of itself may get him into all kinds of hot water in completely other veins. What the heck does that mean? And how is he going to explain that? There is an element, and this is, I think, where there's some crossover with the criminal cases, where Trump implicitly says, I'm deluded. I think, I believe all my lies. I believe that because it's my name, you can't evaluate the business like any other business. And that's, I think, where the willfulness or the recklessness kind of comes to the fore. It's sort of like the defense in the election cases. I really thought I won the election. Doesn't spare you from doing all these illegal things, but kind of that kind of mentality. It's going to be really interesting to see how the attorney general plays with that and either attempts to mock him and insinuate that he's delusional or he plays into it and says, well, here's a guy who, you know, is supposed to be in charge of a business and he is so dismissive of the real world that that amounts to extreme recklessness. Yeah, I think Jen actually picks up on a really good point because this has been a concern for Trump's own lawyers going into Trump taking the stand, which is he's so easily baited. 
coming out of Michael Cohen's testimony, they were particularly concerned that Trump would want to clap back at Cohen because he feels such a personal animus towards him because, you know, they have history and Trump really wants to show Michael Cohen up. And that has been a concern all of last week. And then now on top of everything else that has happened, he has been particularly personally aggrieved, kind of according to the people around him, by having to see his, his kids testify that I think this is a real point of tension for them. And it, it is a real concern, for sure. You know, it's a great point. And because trials, even ones like this with former presidents on the stand, are kind of long, boring couple hours punctuated by real uh, seismic moments. And for example, Eric Trump made the mistake of getting goaded and being angry and letting it show. But that was the focus of all the headlines. So in the same way, if he gets red in the in the face and and makes crazy angry claims, that'll be very very memorable. All right, so we'll we'll be looking out for that. Let's move just because so much is happening, and I want to take advantage of everyone's expertise to Fulton County, where we we had a recent flurry of guilty pleas from Trump's gang of crackpot lawyers. So again, I'll set the stage here. You tell me if you think I'm wrong, and then I want to go to some sort of fine, nuanced points that we really haven't been able to explore too much on TV. Okay, so apparently there have been some plea discussions with more minor players, nothing close as far as we know. There's nothing scheduled, and presumably we're back to one trial, and it could happen soon enough. Let me just start with this. The three lawyers got some pretty sweetheart deals, right? All non-custodial, stay out of jail. You know, too sweet? Or given that Willis gets to claim three scalps and whatever, is the momentum hugely on her side, even though you see these fairly guilty actors getting to stay out of jail? The pleas got increasingly tougher for the defendants as time went on. So we started off with misdemeanor pleas and we worked our way up. Part of it, and this may be where Norm was headed, is going to be in the delivery of whatever information these people give to prosecutors in whatever testimony they provide. If they are incredibly cooperative and not only give testimony at trial, but kind of guide the prosecutors um, as to what they should be looking at and where the chain of evidence is, these could wind up looking like genius moves by the prosecutor if they really help her get the Eastmans, the Rudy Giuliani's, the Mark Meadows, and the Trumps. If these people wind up kind of squirming and giving the most minimal sort of help, which really isn't help at all, it's going to kind of look like she gave away the game here. But she did. They had him do mint video. I mean, we'll see what these videos look like. Right. But it's the equivalent of having been in the grand jury, perhaps. Right. The only thing I would say is that I think as a recovering lawyer, at the very least, I would have liked to see them all plead to at least a felony. Because I think the behavior here in the aggregate was so egregious and set such a bad example for the profession that I would like them all to have a felony conviction, which will arguably make it impossible down the road for them to practice again. And under the First Offender Act, they could wind up with very little consequences here in Georgia. We won't know for sure until we see those video proffers. But I have a lot of respect for the toughness of the Georgia team. They've delivered 
often against adverse and very substantial opponents, the former president, Mark Meadows. They just crushed Mark Meadows and Jeffrey Clark on their removal efforts and no signs that that's going to change. So I'm willing to uh, accept that they wouldn't have done these no-jail deals unless they had gotten substantial proffers. In the case, the other thing that changed over time was the level of cooperation. So Ellis really did classic, like full cooperation agreement. And you saw that her video testimony I wrote for the Times was so powerful. You know, it was played constantly and we're going to see it again and again, renouncing the big lie. So I'm assuming that those are good and therefore that these will be meritorious deals. The other point before I pass to Hugo, who is so expert, there's no national news reporter who has covered Georgia more closely or more correctly analyzed what was to come. Could I just say amen? And nobody had heard of Hugo Lull two years ago. He's a young man. We don't have to say. And man, oh man, he just burst out of the box like this. And do you know how he does it? He does it the old-fashioned way. He works his tush off. He's pounding the pavement, the Zoom pavement, uh, but he's pounding the pavement. He travels constantly, and he really works hard. So I'll let you go. Hugo will have good intel on this, but my bet is that they did get good stuff. Oh, yeah, this was the last point I wanted to make before I was buttering him up to get even higher placement for my quotes and his stories. Um, She has a history of how she wins convictions. And she has a history in big RICO cases. And she starts at the beginning with no jail pleas. She gets good cooperation. And if you look at the Atlanta teacher cheating scandal RICO case, say that five times fast, that's how you know (laughs) I'm a Georgia legal a veteran because I it comes tripping off my tongue. She did just this. It was criticized. She's being too easy, but but she got to the ringleaders and she had her cooperators and she nailed them. So I think she knows what she's doing. All right, Hugo, pressure's on, but could you also opine on whom you see as most under threat from the trio of pleas? I think Norm actually made a good point about the nature of the deals. And I won't say the full phrase because that'll give away who the source is, but the DA's office is, is, is comparing it to bingo. You know, the people who go first are going to get the bigger deals. You know, that's not rocket science. I think, you know, what has really interested me in the last few weeks kind of surrounding the plea office has been who hasn't been approached for deals. Obviously, Trump, our reporting suggests John Eastman as well. Mark Meadows, interestingly, Rudy Giuliani. You know, Meadows is particularly interesting for me because he is in the market for a deal. His own lawyers won't admit to such, but the word on the street among the other defense counsels is he has been actively shopping, and that is what sends the most fear into their minds. By the way, Mark Meadows has got good lawyers both on in the DC side and in the Georgia side. I mean, Jim Durham, you know, formerly was the acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Georgia, the local council there. So Meadows is well represented, but the lack of offers, I think, is very telling. And I think they are starting to wonder if they are going to be pushed to trial. And the thing that has a bearing on that is what we've been talking about, which is, you know, people like Chesbro, people like Power, people like Alice, who have given those tape statements. And with... Chesbro in particular. And don't forget Cassidy Hutchinson, you know, other non-defendants. No, 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 well, of course. But 
but with with Chesbro, Chesbro's got a very interesting profile and had a very interesting attorney. Like Scott Grubman, who was his lawyer in Georgia, went on MSNBC, I think it was last weekend, and said, oh, my client never believed in the election lies and he was just, you know, writing legal memos. And that has been his, his position all the time. But from what I understand, he was comfortable saying that because there was at least some reference to that in the evidence he gave to the DA's office. And I, you know, Norman's right until we figure out exactly what they have testified to what they have, you know, said in their sworn statements. We won't know how helpful they are, but I think that could be instructive as to the kinds of uh, evidence that Chesborough has provided to the DA's office. We started with nineteen defendants in Georgia, and many observers, including me, thought, "Oh, this is a mistake because how are you ever going to try all these people? You know, this is just becoming too complex, too much of a mess." You could easily see this now getting down to four or five people would be the Georgia Republican Party head, Eastman, Rudy, maybe not even Meadows and Trump. So it suddenly becomes a much more manageable case. And frankly, if you have Meadows, maybe Chesborough doesn't become such an essential witness because Meadows was there for everything. He was essentially, you know, attached at the hip. The other thing I would say is there's a difference politically and personally for Meadows, difference between him and people like Eastman, Rudy, and obviously Trump. Mark Meadows is not a true believer. He is just a political animal who wound up in this job far beyond his capabilities, far beyond where he ever thought he was going to go. He doesn't have a real reason to go down with the ship, and he is smart enough to know that if he is convicted in state court, there is nothing Trump could ever do for him, even if he becomes president again. So I think Mark Benos has always been the weak link. It's interesting that that kind of dovetails with what Hugo is saying. And I think he becomes even more likely to do a deal, given the fact that we had albeit a little kind of garbled reporting out of ABC, that there was some kind of immunity, we don't know what, kind of in relation to what kind of testimony in D.C. relating to the Jack Smith trial. So I think he may not be the very next one to flip, but I would be surprised if he actually goes to trial. Let's stick with him for a second. I think if he pleases, he's going to have to go to jail. But the overwhelming calculus that made Ellis and Chesbro and Powell plead of how much it's going to cost and their exposure, given everyone's been subject to the, the whole RICO charge, I think certainly applies to the Georgia electors other than Schaefer. And I do see this also as sort of a six-person prosecution of Trump, Meadows, Giuliani, Clark, Eastman, and then Schaefer. But what about this? Let's say it's true, and the source of it might be Meadows himself. How big a sort of hairball would it be if it turns out that Meadows, as reported, has given immunized testimony in the federal Chutkin case? It's a, it's a potential big headache, isn't it, for the Fulton County prosecution? This is pretty nuanced, but aren't they going to have to show that nothing, including even the preparation of the witnesses, I mean, that's a pretty tough opinion, the Meadows testimony, and that might be his his way of kind of wriggling out or hoping for, as you guys have said, great lawyers, and they've gone to this point, but how the hell is he going to get out of the Fulton County vise that he's in? Thoughts? 
you know, it's conceivable Meadows would seek a, a Castigar hearing to make a determination that the Georgia prosecution was not tainted in any way by his cooperation. And Fonnie Willis has the advantage of a full grand jury record that predates any leak of cooperation, the advantage of never having talked to Jack Smith, according to the most recent press reports. She's kept her distance uh, wisely, so there can be no taint there. And it's not even clear to me that if she used these unsourced press reports that have been circulating, which have been denied, largely denied by Terwilliger, that that would really be enough to create a taint. The way you deal with a Castigar problem includes documenting all of your evidence so that you can prove to the judge, look, here's the evidence that I indicted him on. Here's the evidence we're going to use at trial. This is not influenced in any way by this taint. They weren't able to do that in the North case, but one anonymously sourced news article is not going to taint the Fonnie Willis prosecution of Meadows. I'm sure that Meadows lawyers just logically, just like we all laughed when they kept denying that they were engaging with Jack Smith, it was so obvious when you got the indictment in the federal election overthrow case, and they have all of the culpable unindicted co-conspirators, and Mark Meadows is not one of them. Well, there's only one reason they would not be including Mark Meadows there, okay? And it does explain why he testified in removal. Does everyone agree with me that there's no deal for Meadows that doesn't involve jail time? Uh, No, I do not agree. I think that if he were willing to testify truthfully and completely, he could be an incredibly valuable witness against Trump. And my experience, as a, mostly as a defense lawyer, only occasionally representing the government, has been that if you can get the top guy, you're, you know, you do deal with the devil. And Meadows certainly is extremely culpable, but he could give you Trump, he could give you Giuliani, he could give you Eastman, who knows who else he would roll over on, like members of Congress or funders. Those are the two groups that have gotten the most a pass so far, right? Yeah. So I think that deal is there for him. The problem is he screwed himself with his removal testimony because he was not credible and he was not cooperative. He compromised himself in a way that the other defense lawyers can say, were you lying then or are you lying now? He compromised his own value to Fonnie Willis. And I think to Jack Smith a little bit with that testimony. So gang that can't shoot straight misses again. I just don't know how valuable the DA's team sees him at this point for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you compare the indictment side by side, the DC indictment and the Georgia indictment, Fonnie Willis actually managed to extract some details that weren't in the DC indictment. And I think that is very telling. You know, she has separate sources of information. She has, she has separate evidence, especially with respect to what Meadows was doing kind of in the post election period. Second of all, according to our reporting, at least, and it, it mostly dovetails with CBS and ABC as well, which is that in the DC case, the immunity came through a court order. We are reporting that it was limited use immunity, where he you know, threatened or did invoke his Fifth Amendment privilege to not incriminate himself, and then was subsequently ordered to testify to the grand jury. That seems to suggest that he was not a particularly willing witness. He was a very reluctant witness in that sense. And I think those two things combined have diminished his value 
in the eyes of the district attorney's office. And that's at least what we're hearing. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's sidebar is about magistrate judges and how they fit in to the overall structure of the federal judiciary. And to explain that concept, we welcome Dina Hashem. Known for her deadpan delivery and nuanced observations, Dina has been a standout on the New York comedy scene since winning her first appearance on Comedy Central's Roast Battle. Dina recently wrote on season two of The Sex Lives of College Girls, as well as B.J. Novak's FX anthology, The Premise, and her voiceover work has been featured on the Apple TV animated show, Central Park. She has been named one of Team Coco's comics to watch. I give you Dina Hashem on the Magistrates Act. When an officer wants to secure a search warrant, he or she typically takes the matter to a magistrate judge. Who are magistrate judges and how do they compare with other judges in the federal system, aka Article 3 judges, so-called for the constitutional provision that created them? In 1968, Congress passed the Federal Magistrate Act, which first created magistrate judges in the federal court system. A number of amendments have since expanded magistrates' responsibilities. While both types of judges must be lawyers, unlike federal district court judges who are appointed by the president and enjoy life tenure during good behavior, magistrates are appointed by the district court they serve typically for renewable eight-year terms. To all appearances, including robes, a magistrate functions very much like a federal judge with respect to the matters he or she handles. That said, magistrates' matters are generally less complex and consequential than the main workload of Article Three judges. Less complex and less consequential. That's rude. That's a bit rude. Magistrates perform a large array of judicial work, and these tasks can be expanded with the consent of the parties. Magistrates often review search warrants, hold preliminary hearings, preside over petty offense cases. Petty. Because more serious cases must be tried by a life-tenured federal judge unless the defendant consents. Oh, also, they oversee complicated discovery in civil cases. Okay, I take it back. I take it back. They also oversee complicated discovery in civil cases and conduct extradition proceedings. All this does a great deal to alleviate the burdens on federal judges. They sound like they put that in there to to make up for all the other shitty things they said. All this does a great deal to alleviate the burdens on federal judges. The majority of the decisions and activities of a magistrate judge are subject to review and approval by a federal judge. However, when all parties involved in a civil suit consent, a magistrate judge may preside over the trial itself without being subject to the review of a federal judge. We'll take your leash off for a second if the, if the parties consent. For Talking Feds, I'm Dina Hashem. Thank you so much, Dina Hashem. Dina's breakout comedy special, Dark Little Whispers, premieres on Amazon Prime on November 10th, this Friday. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. 
Hello, I'm Lauren Johnson, director of the ACLU's Abortion Criminal Defense Initiative. Let's be clear, those who want to end access to abortion care did not stop at the reversal of Roe v.ersus Wade. Prosecutors and politicians across the country are now threatening criminal penalties against providers, helpers, and in some instances, those who access abortion care. The attack on reproductive freedom continues, and we will not stop fighting back. In addition to the work the ACLU is doing to stop laws that ban abortion, we're working alongside other reproductive legal rights organizations in the Abortion Defense Network to provide critical legal defense support. The ACLU's Abortion Criminal Defense Initiative is mobilizing a network of skilled criminal defense attorneys to defend people facing criminal investigations or prosecutions for providing, supporting, or obtaining abortion care. Those facing prosecution related to abortion care deserve a zealous defense. They will not stand alone. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we unbottle the truth about wine. Is there really a right or a wrong way to enjoy it? Wine drinkers near and far have lived by a certain set of written yet unofficial rules to follow, particularly when it comes to pairing wine and food. You've heard a couple of them before. White wine pairs with seafood, red wine pairs with big old juicy steaks. And while we like to think of these more as guidelines than rules, some suggestions actually do serve a higher purpose to help your wine get the most from your dish and vice versa. One pairing that's not quite as obvious involves tannins. Tannins are the dryness that you taste and feel in wine. They come from grape seeds, skin, or oak barrels. Traditionally, high tannin wines and spicy foods don't pair well together. The dry components of the wine become more pronounced with spice, which makes the food itself taste even hotter than it actually is. From drinking red wine with fish to white wine with beef, we say you do you. But there is one no-no that we wholeheartedly live by. Always, yes, always, hold your glass by the stem and not the bulb. And there are a few reasons why. Putting your warm hands on the bulb transfers unnecessary heat to the wine. As wine warms up, it will become off balance and you will taste the alcohol more and more. Not to mention, you can easily avoid smudges to your beautiful glassware. To truly enjoy wine, you can never go wrong pairing the wonderful selection and helpful guides at Total Wine & More. Cheers. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. That brings us to Judge Chutkin. And again, I'll set the stage. It's getting real. February 9th for juror questionnaires. There's a couple important pretrial motions out there, one on the gag order and one on immunity. Norm, you've called the immunity motion the most potentially consequential why and what's your, are you thinking that that's his best escape route to the Chuckin case? Yeah, I think he loses on immunity, but there are serious, never res before resolved questions because presidential criminality of this kind is so uh, atypical. So yes, I think that that is something that could, it needn't, it shouldn't, Trump should lose, as I just wrote for CNN opinion, and he should lose fast because we can't afford to have that March 2024 trial slip. We need to know if the leading candidate, one of the major political parties, 
is convicted of abusing the office that he seeks to occupy once more. The appellate courts, the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court have shown they can move very quickly when there's a need for speed. That was true in U.S. v. Nixon and Trump v. Thompson. Both of those cases took a little over three months. No reason appeals should take longer here. And uh, if so, we keep our March 2024 trial date. But this is what I'm watching to determine whether we go to trial or not. Nothing else is going to stand in the way, and this shouldn't. Let's stick with this for a second in terms of timing, if they weigh in on immunity. Do you agree with Norm that they'll be really focused on speed and not letting the spring trial date slip too much? I have confidence that the D.C. Circuit has that very much in mind. I think the circuit as a whole has shown it is very intent upon moving this along. The D.C. Circuit has mixed panels um, who span kind of the ideological spectrum. But I think most of the appellate justices on the D.C. Circuit, and certainly if they were to take an en banc hearing, which they would if they lose, would not look fondly on the argument that Trump is immune from interfering with an election when the office of the president has no role in the election process. And remember, that is the area here. Because of the way that it was pled, there are very specific actions that Jack Smith has outlined. It's not like Fawnie Willis's, you know, a thousand actions um, where she had to kind of weave her way through those hearings and combat the argument that as long as you had one little piece that was a federal action that uh, you got jimmied up into a higher court. So I think the chances are that he loses. I think both Chutkin and the D.C. Circuit is going to be very careful to try to make this hard for the Supreme Court to muck around in. Um, they do that by very specific assumptions of fact. They do this with kind of leaning in his favor in terms of the standard of proof. We're not really sure what that looks like. I don't think, and I may be proven wrong, that this Supreme Court has much interest in riding to the rescue of Donald Trump. They've got enough problems right now. They really do with their own credibility and ethics problems. They need this, as my dear mother would say, like a hole in the head. They don't need to drag themselves in and now be accused of rescuing Donald Trump from a criminal prosecution. Right on the threshold of a federal election, right? Correct. So I could see them either one, not taking cert. Number two, I could see them saying there's no issue here because the issue of, for example, the legal issue of the standard of proof has already been taken out of this. Or I could see them saying, go forward with the trial and we'll see how it comes out in the wash. I do not see the Supreme Court being the one to let Donald Trump off the hook in a criminal prosecution. All right. And just to stay in the weeds a little bit more, this is one where the difference between five votes to hold firm on the merits and four votes to grant review could really matter if you start to do your Supreme Courtology. And the question at the, at the court level will be if they see a really important, meaty federal question to resolve, because that will translate into at least a kind of race to November 2024. 
my basic feeling, just to put my cards on the table, is at the end of the day, he will lose, but the question is about delay in this, the most important trial. The other big issue here, and ask for your thoughts, Hugo, which is the gag order. So she reinstates it. He appeals it, but he and he's now moved, has Trump to stay and says, if you don't grant it, D.C. Circuit, please give me seven days to move to the U.S. Supreme Court. So he signaled he's going to the wall on this. I don't see his odds of being very good. And if he goes to the wall and loses, then he really doesn't have any sort of legal leg to stand on. What you're thinking about, you know, where the whole chicken game between him and Chutkin stands and whether he is looking to basically, you know, be a martyr even at the cost of going in jail to be able to tell his followers, you know, he's dying for their sins, so to speak. I think several points. I think, first of all, he thinks he has nothing to lose here, right? Like, as far as he's concerned, he's got a gag order. He's prevented from assailing, most importantly to him, Jack Smith's team and potential trial witnesses. So for him, there's no downside. If he appeals and he even gets a, a partial win, then that, that's great. And if he loses uh, and he has to go to the Supreme Court, then he will do so. I think the biggest issue for me is, is going to be the question of the stays. And is he going to be able to stay parts of this case pending appeal, not just on the gag order, frankly, but also on, on the immunity point. And kind of his lawyers have signaled that that's where they want to take things, which, of course, has a separate knock-on effect, as we have already seen in the classified documents case. Because his lawyers are arguing in Fort Pierce, the Judge Cannon in that case, that if there are delays in the DC case and we might not go to trial, you know, at, at the end of March, then that's going to have a knock-on effect and we can't go to trial in May in the documents case. So I think there are a lot of moving parts and just kind of what we were talking about earlier about the, the immunity and whether the, you know, the outer perimeter test and whether it, it can be construed as Trump acting within his official scope as president as opposed to a candidate. I mean, he probably loses on the merits of that, but the stays, I think, is where things are shifting. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, the weeks are ticking by, right? And we're getting into the real meat of things. All right, we've only got a few minutes. There's a couple cases out there in which people are saying, keep him off the ballot because he violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment by swearing an oath to the U.S. and then engaging in insurrection. The Minnesota Supreme Court has heard this. There's a trial going on in Colorado. Assuming some court somewhere approves the theory, what happens then? Is there really a plausible scenario where this becomes an actual dispositive uh, point in the presidential election? There's been promising signs in Colorado where the judge at least seems to have an open mind. The evidence came in very well for the plaintiffs in that case, coming in not as strong, in my view, for Donald Trump. You could well get a ruling from that judge. She said she wants to complete her effort by Thanksgiving because the Secretary of State needs to start submitting the names for the ballot in early January. And she wants, the judge wants time for her decision to be considered on appeal and then for the Supreme Court to intervene should they choose to. So I suspect we'll know 
by January, whether the litigants crew, which I was formerly associated with, I was very proud co-founder of that organization, chairman of the board and served with the org for years. I think my former colleagues uh, have done a very expert job with their outstanding Colorado counsel in putting on the case. And now we'll have to see what happens. Let's say with Colorado, though, let's say by Thanksgiving, she were to hold that he's not qualified to be on the ballot. Well, you then you'll see an emergency review on appeal in Colorado, and it will very quickly make its way to the Supreme Court. This might even be one. And then we'll know. You know, Harry, I have a nickname, Norm Stradamus, because I love to <laughs> offer. Someone called me this week, Norm Stradamus. But I, I think uh, beyond saying that uh, the crew has really done a terrific job, and I've written often about the insurrectionist nature of Trump's behavior and the self-executing quality of the 14th Amendment. Um, now we'll see what the courts do. I don't see how this doesn't go to the Supreme Court. And frankly, without regard to this court or the merits. And soon, right? It should. It should go there. We shouldn't have the Supreme Court of Minnesota deciding whether those electoral votes are in play or not. So it goes to the Supreme Court. I don't know. Just a hunch. But I don't think this Supreme Court is going <laughs> to say Donald Trump can't be on the ballot. For the same reason, I don't see them rescuing him in the criminal trial. I think they want as little to do with this as possible. And I have looked at both sides of this issue on Section 3. There's a ton of hard issues having to do with whether it's self-executing, whether you need some kind of judgment, what the facts were of this case. At the very, very least, I would expect that, and I don't think I would disagree with it, that the Supreme Court would send this back to lower courts for full factual findings on what he actually did. I don't see how you could possibly ban him from the ballot on what does turn on what it is he did without some detailed factual findings. By the way, nothing should take away from the fact that the lawyer in the Minnesota Supreme Court gave a brilliant argument on many of these issues. But if you had a basket, I would not put maybe more than one egg in it, but <laughs> on all of them. You go, I saw smiles and nods as Jen was uh, answering. Do you uh, basically concur? Yeah, I think Jen uh, kind of outlined exactly what I was thinking. I think going into this, it was basically the Trump team's belief that the base. The fact that Trump wasn't indicted in the in the DC indictment for inciting insurrection, they clearly they didn't want to get into the Brandenburg tests. Trump has been very confident all the way through that he was going to prevail on the ballot removal issues. And that has kind of framed how I've thought about it as well, because I think that's actually quite a compelling position. Yeah, I'll put my cards on the table here as well, because there's a lot of very uh, formidable opinion across the political spectrum saying, you know, that it is self-executing. But if you think about it in terms of the Supreme Court, I'm thinking of the gerrymandering case and others and thinking that in one fashion or another, they'll say, this ain't us. It's a political question or we need more findings 
or whatever, but for them to actually, it'd be breathtaking for starters for them to effectively decide the election that way. And then it's in the Constitution. It's got to be some way to execute it. But my best guess is a year from now, we won't know what that way is and it won't have been against Donald Trump. And just quickly, because we're running out of time, two minutes on the Eileen Cannon documents case down in Florida. During Wednesday's hearing, Judge Cannon listened to arguments presented by Trump attorneys to delay the trial schedule again, and she seemed quite sympathetic to Trump's lawyers and irritated with the government. Hugo, you were present at the hearing. Tell us your reactions, please. It is fascinating to me the number of outs or number of excuses she is trying to give Trump to delay this trial. You know, the briefing papers ahead of that hearing, it was a scheduling hearing, was all focused on the discovery and the fact that the discovery was the classified discovery was delayed. When we got to the hearing, she started with the unclassified discovery. Oh, are you sure you got all the unclassified discovery? And then she went to the classified. But even Todd Blanche was like, look, the final production in this district, which was a stipulation that Cannon added, and you know, when they were saying, oh, we've already got all the discovery by October 18, we have plenty, we, we now have the materials with which to file our motions to compel to get to CEPA section four. She then said, well, you know, are you sure? Do you, are you sure you don't need more time? And then what she did was she changed gears and said, oh, okay, and by the way, what's happening in the scheduling elsewhere? And that was what gave Tom Blanche the ability to say, oh, that's actually a great point because we're scheduled to go to trial in DC in March. The case will take four weeks for, for Jack Smith's team, two weeks in defense, plus jury selection, plus deliberation. We'll be writing straight into May. And she seized on that as the excuse to delay deadlines. And I don't know really why it is. Like It could be that she just wants to help out Trump. I'm starting to wonder if it's just because she doesn't want to deal with this case and she doesn't want it to go to trial before the election selfishly because however it ends, she's going to get a blowback. I think it's a really good point. And also this sort of brittleness on her part. Look, they're a professional outfit, the prosecutors here. And a judge can always do that. And that sort of sniping to me had a, I saw it as psychologically a sign of wanting to justify an overall pushback on the prosecution team that is not warranted. She hates Jay Brat. She really does. On top of everything else, the bias question stuff, she's a pretty inexperienced judge. All right, we are just about out of time. We have one minute for our final feature of Talking Five, where we uh, take a, a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And the question this week is, what will be Ivanka Trump's next effort to delay her testimony? She wasn't able to make it fly by saying we're in the middle of a school week. So what might she argue next to keep out of testifying in the fraud trial? She is out of options. That's five. She must make Jared's dinner. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hugo? Must fly to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And I'm going with Happy Meal Special at McDonald's. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Jen, Hugo, and Norm. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. 
If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content, as well as daily explanations by me of important developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where you can also attend monthly Q&A sessions with me, the next one being tonight. So if you sign up today, you can join that discussion and send questions my way, as well as ad-free versions of our episodes. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether they're for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, Associate Producer Catherine Devine. Sound Engineering by Matt McCardle. Our Research Producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. And production assistance by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Dina Hashem for explaining the Magistrates Act. Our endless gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.